the Classic Comics Forum podcast presents issue number 33, John Sable Freelance, part 2. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris-King, and in this episode, I'm once again joined by special guest Tartan Phantom to discuss the seminal 1980s independent comic series John Sable Freelance by Mike Grell. In the first part of our three-part discussion, we talked about Grell's origins as an artist at DC and how he moved into the independent space in the early 80s, and we also discussed the creation of John Sable Freelance and the first six issues of John Sable Freelance. In this episode, we'll be picking up right where we left off, and we'll be digging into some of the seminal 80s works filled with 80s tropes and discussions of 80s political stuff that make John Sable Freelance not just a vital and important work in comics history, but also the key 80s book if you want to read all about what it was like reading comics in the 80s. So, if books from the 80s interest you we've got you covered so strap in and sit tight and i hope you enjoy part two of john sable freelance here's issue seven very very uh, sort of typical classic grill um the sketchiness, the the uh, the woman, um, the circles. He loves to have the circles. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's a target, and we meet a new character here, Sonny, which is like his mentor, who is like a, um, a an old fashioned like old time stunt guy from Hollywood from back in the day, and uh, he's a lot of fun. He comes swashbuckling in to the series, and we get a couple arcs later with him. I have to say, uh, he's a great addition to the cast, and and Grell does a great job in building this really interesting supporting cast. Um, On my reread of the series, I was surprised at how little most of his supporting cast, other than Mike, really did or got to do. Uh, Sonny in particular, there's one arc coming up not too long from now that um, gets into him a little bit, but um, in my head, some of these characters had a much bigger role than it turns out they actually have on the page. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was really excited to read this issue with Sonny, and then I was a little disappointed that how little he actually does or shows up in a lot of the later issues. Um, there's a scene in here, uh, just want to mention where. Um, B.B. Flem appears on the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson as a guest. Uh, again, very tied to the time period. And the end of the what, what seems like the end of the story, but it actually t- carries over into the next issue. It doesn't, there's no warning of it here. There's no yeah. sign that this means anything. But we have this ending where like Sable brings this woman, he saved this woman, he brings her back to the, the house and they're about to get it on in this very sort of classic James Bond ending. And then all of a sudden, Sonny comes literally like on a rope swinging in dressed as Zorro and he starts doing the Zorro routine and basically the woman's like, what the hell is this? And she leaves and the, and the story ends there. And um, I thought it was really funny. It was a very abrupt ending. Um, 
but yeah, it was like <laughs> it was a nice in, like uh, subversion of the of that what your expectations of what's about to happen. Yeah, in a lot of ways that reminds you talk about you know uh, like Bond Bond type plot devices, and it it really reminded me of some of the Roger Moore movies, the endings of some of them, where he's finally going to get the girl, and then and 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 you know things are just about to happen, and next thing you know. Here comes uh, M on the video screen, you know, and right. and, you know so, <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, kind of a, 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 a down note, you know, for, at the moment, you know, but, but Sonny, um, I, at first I thought he was using Sonny mainly as a name dropping device uh, because right. he mentions, for example, he mentions a character, Sonny mentions some of his people he worked with, you know, in Hollywood and he mentions a character that is very clearly Yakima Canut, who was a famous stunt stunt man in Hollywood. Right. Worked, you know, worked for John Ford and and did a lot of uh, uh, you know did well. He did Ben Hur, and then he also did uh, a, a stagecoach uh, uh, and did the the, the stunt scenes in stagecoach. He doesn't mention him as Yakima Canut. He calls I can't remember what he calls the character, but it's a name similar to that Wichita something or whatever and but it's very clearly meant to be that, that person. Right. And, and, but it turns out later on, like I said, there is a, there's a, a storyline that's really, although it's not central to uh, Sonny is not the central character in that issue. It, it, there's a storyline that really brings home a couple of things about him. And you realize that in a lot of ways, he's kind of a sad character. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, overall, I mean, it's, it, it keeps it lighthearted here and, and throughout. You, you get the idea as you as Sonny is used in here that he's um, uh, Sonny puts on his best face for everybody else. You know? Yeah. Um, so the next, the Sonny has a small role in this next two parter here. I've got um, issue eight, issue nine. Yeah. Um, the, 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 okay. Speaking of issue nine, and I, I thought it was, you know, a cliffhanger. Of course, this kind of predates uh, uh, the Sylvester Stallone movie, but uh, yeah. that could have been a, a poster for the Sylvester Stallone movie if this had been uh, Stallone down here. And, you know, uh, so uh, it's a, you know, I, I thought that, I thought that very interesting. I don't know if that's, uh, I mean, it's, I'm well, sure it's purely circumstance, you know. Yeah, if if I was better editing, I'd edit. There's a hilarious, unintentionally hilarious clip and cliffhanger right at the beginning where the woman is dangling and they're about to drop her, mm-hmm. and they cut to uh, blanking on the actor's name is this this older guy. Uh, I wish I could remember his name. Um, I want to say Slim Pickens, but that's not right. Uh, but anyway, this old guy, and they cut to him, and he's he's got this look on his face like he's so excited that this woman's about to drop to her death that it cracks me up on the rare occasions i've had the misfortune of watching that film it's cracked me up because it's just so anyway uh (laughs) not as funny but really this storyline for me is like pure 100 grell at his most grell so if you if you like this story you're gonna like grell because the first part of the story is this very twisty mystery case where there's this woman who shows up on his and she's she's wanted for murder and and uh but she didn't do it and then it turns out she really didn't do it because the guy is not even dead and 
they think that she stole this thing from the safe, but she didn't end up stealing it. And then Grell goes and goes undercover and finds out that no is this other guy. And he unravels the whole mystery. And he actually had stolen this thing and given this gem to this woman to impress this woman. And uh, he unravels the whole mystery. And then he, as part of it, he was like, no one can find the money. And they're like, there's only one place they could have sent the money. They, they mailed it to my house while I'm here because they knew that, that uh, I wouldn't be at home, but Sonny's there. So Sonny like ships the package back and he opens it up. He's like, here's the proof. And he pulls it out and the, the money's there, but there's also a bunch of secret documents. And he's like, what the hell's this? And all of a sudden these guys burst into the room. And then it turns out that everything he just said was completely wrong. Yeah. And the next issue, you find out there's this really convoluted plot that involves like the Libyans and the Soviets, and they're gonna <laughs> this plot to like detonate a nuke in New York City, and he has to like take like, and I'm just like, whoa! And it's yeah. so Grell. It's it, just it really so took a left like, turn, at, you know. And again, I know Grell had that planned out, but you're you're not expecting when when the plot line comes in. Uh, with the Libyans, you're like, you know, WTF? I mean, where did this come from? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's the twist is ridiculous, but it's very again. You really see the the heavy James Bond influence yeah. here, and um, this to me, like I said a couple times, it's quintessential growl. And I mean that in terms of if you read Green Arrow, the series you did after this. This is the sort of story you get all the time in the first half of his run on Green Arrow. There's all this twisty CIA secret agent plots, and that's what a lot of the Sable series is too. Um, but I feel like uh, the first like seven issues, we don't see as much of this sort of thing. And this is what where we really start getting in all of this like political uh like uh, international spy thriller stuff Intrigue, yeah yeah and we're going to be seeing a whole lot of it going forward so this to me pure growl like ludicrous but in a very entertaining sort of way um i don't know if i call it ludicrous more than i would call it uh, uh cinematic because it doesn't take place in just a few issues it goes throughout you know the the, the series and, yeah, and, you know, in, in different, in different, you know, in different ways. But yeah, it it, it turns up. Uh, uh, I mean, the way their their recurring characters, as you thought, were okay. That's the last time I see that character, and then they show up fifteen issues later, and you're like, what? You know? Yeah. Um. I want to just talk about issue ten real quick. Um. One thing I really love about this is that is Grell's pacing. It's not just that he knows where the characters are going to go. He's very carefully, and it's not just pacing within the story. He's paced the series out expertly. So as I said right at the beginning, we get two single-issue adventures to kick things off that introduce the characters and the settings but have self-contained stories. Then we get this four-issue origin arc. Then we get a two more stories that are very twisty action oriented action packed and then after that we take a step back and we get this issue triptych which um has basically character studies of uh john sable but 
all of the supporting characters mm-hmm. get highlighted here. We got um, John and Mike, Eden and Sonny. There's another character that we haven't mentioned that's in the supporting cast, which is Josh Charles, I think his name is. He's a police detective and he's sort of like the guy who's always busting on Sable because Sable is uh, interfering with the police business, mm-hmm. but then secretly, it turn, you know, as the series goes along, you know, they keep interacting and it's adversarial on the surface, but there's sort of a grudging respect that they have for each other. And um, he gets the spotlight here. You know, with that, uh, it, um, that, that relationship, I'll tell you right now, and you say you don't have, you haven't read a whole lot of uh, a Will Eisner spirit, but uh, Lieutenant Dolan, the, who is the police commissioner uh, and or he's a lieutenant and then he's a detective and then he becomes police commissioner at one point, but he has a very same, very similar relationship with the spirit who, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a love hate kind of thing. And, and they're, they're, they're friends in a cordial way uh, throughout a lot of the series, but then it's, there's also um, that thing of, well, uh, I've got to do my job and, 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 and catch the spirit breaking the law or doing something wrong, you know, and I think you had a similar relationship here where, uh, where, uh, you know, he knows that uh, uh, he has to, you know, he, he works for the police and, and he knows that Sable works outside of the law by and large, you know, a lot of the time. Uh, and he knows bound by duty, he, he, he needs to pursue that, but he also it's, you know, uh, a lot of times Sable uh, uh, gets off the hook by the skin of his teeth just on a technicality or something, you know. Right. So, so it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting relationship. Yeah. Um, the most important thing in this issue, though, is that it introduces Gray Adler yeah. to the supporting cast. Now, Gray Adler is a character who is Mike Blackman's roommate. Um, he's also gay. He's a Broadway dancer. And uh, this is cover dated May 1984. Um, it's one of the first uh, gay characters in mainstream comics. I put that in my exact, you just quoted me almost verbatim in my own notes. Yeah. I had thought for a long time that he was the first, but it was pointed out in, one, in something I was reading recently that. Um, In uh, J.M.D. Matisse, or Matties, I don't know how to pronounce it, yeah. uh, his run on Captain America, which is coming out right around the same time, yeah. there's um, a character there, I think his name is Arnie, Arnie Roth, mm-hmm. who is a, f- a childhood friend of Steve Rogers. And um, he's a gay character who's a recurring character. It's not as... Uh, it's not written as clearly to begin with, right. but by the end of that arc where he ends up getting captured, um, you know, by a couple different people, um, it's very clear. And so he is a sporting character for probably a couple of years running in Captain America. And that was uh, just like the year before this. So I think technically he would be the first that I'm aware of, but um it's really interesting. Uh, I really like the character of Gray Adler. Me too. The I like the fact that he wasn't written as a stereotype. 
right for the most part you know it really wasn't yeah it what's interesting here is i have a f- suspicion that this Grell has a number of different places in the series where he talks about LGBTQ characters or issues, spotlights, different things. Some of them are successful for me. There's one in particular we'll talk about later that I thought was wildly wrong and inappropriate. But for the most part, I think he does a really good job. However, uh, he does a good job in an in the 1980s sense exactly. i think people reading it now like if you if you have like a gen z 20 year old who's reading these as back issues now i think they would have a lot of problems with some of the scenes in a way that i think grell is actually doing something really interesting and good it's kind of the way i equate like uh if you read some of the comics in the 70s dealing with with race um if you if you grew up during the time and you're watching all in the family and stuff that was the level of discourse that was happening and was right. i think necessary to get to the next level of discourse right right you have to you have to break that ice at some point and 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 you know before you can even broach something that was previously taboo or still by and large considered taboo by a large you know portion of the populace and and you know, now you have, you, I mean, it's like anything else, Scott, you have, when you're reading fiction, even if you're reading nonfiction, you have to understand the context of it in the time at which it was written. And it's so important because otherwise you lose the perspective of the author completely. Yeah. And so in specifically what I'm talking about here, the perspective of the author is, is clearly, um, progressive yeah i don't think it's pandering at all no Uh, i think what some people might misunderstand contextually is that the character of john sable is is what what i really like about this is that the character john sable comes into this as this straight older guy older but you know he's Mm -hmm. he's 40 when this story takes place who has never really known a gay man before right. and I didn't know that he knew one yeah yes yes good point uh and is uncomfortable um and they become pretty good friends over the course of the series mm-hmm. and uh he's he's uncomfortable but is sort of aware of his bias uh and yeah. so um sort of is sort of like I'm, there's no reason for me to feel this way, so I'm just gonna try and ignore it. And he makes a lot of jokes um, about how uncomfortable he is, but it I find it to be a really great arc with him, where he sort of learns by knowing Gray that it's like, oh, it's you know, it's not a big deal, it's not a thing. Um, but I, I I just wonder how that would play to to younger people now that don't. Like I think there could be easily a conflation between John Sable's attitude as a character and Mike Grell's attitude as a writer, which I think mm-hmm. are two different things. Because I think he's doing a great job of writing a very realistic depiction of what a character like John Sable might have felt at the time, while also providing a really great character in Gray Adler that's handled 
um, with a lot of respect. Well, you know, because it, one thing, and I, I don't know, if it, I don't think specifically in this issue, it's in a later issue, where um, he makes and actually forces the point, Rel forces the point uh, about, uh, and again, you have to take this in the context of the time at which it was written and the public perception at that time. I mean, uh, you know, in a lot of states, it, it, I mean, even, uh, you know, even being, if you were gay, even being in public with your partner was, was uh, risky, it's flat out risky. Um, but the, the whole point he makes in this, where there's a conversation that, that Sable has with Gray and Gray says, relax, you know, it's that perception of a straight guy, is, well, he's not going to hit on me, is he? And, 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 and Gray makes the point of, relax, do you hit on every female you see or, or that you meet, you know? And when you pull, pull back from that and you look at that, it comes, well, no, I'm a straight guy, but no, I don't do that. Well, you know, <laughs> then, then don't expect every uh, a gay individual or LBGTQ individual that meets you to automatically have eyes for you. Uh, it's kind of presumptuous and, and in a really bad way, it's presumptuous, you know? And I think yeah. he kind of eliminates that by bringing that out and forcing that point. Right. And I think it's, uh, it's something again, where the, the attitudes have changed so much uh, in the 35 years since this came out yeah. that um, in, in, in such a positive way that I think some younger people might not even understand why that conversation exactly. is necessary. Exactly. Um, Grell, I think, has a really good track record with, with uh, dealing with LGBTQ stuff. I think it's very important to him. There's a very famous storyline in Green Arrow right at the beginning of the run that deals with... Um, uh, gay couples in Seattle that were being attacked and murdered, mm -hmm. uh, that were being targeted as a hate crime, which was pulled from the headlines, real thing that was happening in Seattle at the time. So it's something that's clearly important to him. And I think he does a good job overall, though, again, we'll get to one story later on that I think he really, really stepped in it, but yeah. that's, that's for later. Okay. Um, so issue 11, Maggie the Cat shows up. First appearance of Maggie the Cat. Great Grell cover. He loves the 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 female cat character Shakira in Warlord being the prime. He loves drawing these black cats. Um, Maggie the Cat great, was great Grell cover too. I mean, it really yeah, is. Totally it really great. is. It's great. It's a. Uh, uh, it strikes me and it struck me reading it how much um, he draws her to look like Princess Diana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Maggie the Cat's a character that has a, an outsized impression in my head because she she had a, if I'm not mistaken, spun out into her own limited series and yeah, and so I think of her as being like a main part of the series. But in fact, she only appears in the series like three times. Right. Um, much later on, like in the early 2000s, they he did a, a series where he brought her back. Um, for a mini series with with John Sable, but in the original series here, she's really not much of a presence. Um, she uh, is a very James Bond influenced storyline. I don't actually have many notes about this. The one thing is though that he gets hired as this guard to protect this diamond that she's trying to steal, and basically she wins. She gets away, and he loses, and he has his reputation damaged. And this sort of happens every time they meet where she gets the best of him, um, which when you look at it in, 
as part of the overall thing with the major female characters in the series, they almost all end up ha having advantage over him mm -hmm. one way or another. Well, you know, the, with that, with it, when I read this for the first time, one of the things that came to mind was the, um, uh, I believe it's the Return of the Pink Panther uh, film, the third Pink Panther movie, and <coughs> excuse me, has Christopher Plummer and um, um, uh, Catherine Catherine Shell, Catherine Von Shell, uh, is Christopher Plummer's wife, and and Christopher Plummer is is uh, the phantom who is the thief of the pink panther diamond but uh, it turns out that he didn't he didn't initiate the thief of, uh, uh, he didn't initiate the theft of that the diamond in that particular movie it was his wife who, who was the actual cat burglar in that movie that stole the diamond and uh, it, it it kind of reflected in this book a little bit um, because he's somewhat of a, of a playful character and much as uh, Catherine Shell's character was in that movie and I can see in reading back through these, I can see a lot of, um, of, of where he may have taken an idea or a concept from a film that he had seen and then worked it in to the storyline. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he just, that he lifted directly because it's, there's enough of a difference there where it's not, but there are certain parallels that you see throughout the series that parallel films that were, you know, out at that time or had been out, you know. Yeah, we're going to really see that there's a storyline right towards the end, which is seems like a ripoff of Die Hard, but actually uh, came exactly out. What you're talking about. Yeah. It actually came out just before Die Hard. Before Die Hard, yep. Um, I made that in my notes, too. <laughs> uh, so issues 12 and 13, there's a two-part storyline. Here's 12, 13, and you can see it says MIA. And and really, I'm going I'm, I'm I'm to stop you for just a moment. I'll say right now. I think these two issues are, are, are is one of the best story arcs in the entire series. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll be curious to, uh, I have a couple of things to say about it. And basically what happens is we learn that Sonny is, we've, he's kind of a drunkard and his family is sort of estranged. And it yeah. turns out it's because his son is missing in action still from, in, from his service in Vietnam. And uh, Sable takes it a, sort of upon himself to go to Vietnam and look for Sonny's son. And he gets like a little team, a couple guys together and they go back to Vietnam to try and find the guy. And uh, they end up finding what they think is evidence that the guy has died. And then we, the reader see at the end that maybe the guy is actually still alive there um, or someone some American is still alive. Now, yeah. my notes are basically that um, I was a little confused a, a little bit about Sable's own personal history because it seems as though before he went to the Munich Games in 72 that he did some service in Vietnam himself in yeah. 1970. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention is, so this is from 1984. This was a big thing in media books and movies and tv shows at the time was the idea that there were still american soldiers who had never been released and were still captured and were still mm -hmm. prisoners or living in vietnam and there were several movies chuck norris had a movie there were several films and stuff about 
people going back to Vietnam, like mercenaries that are go back to Vietnam to rescue the soldiers there. So um, very, again, it's very much for me of that time period. Um, Mike Grell, of course, was a Vietnam vet. So this is something close to him. We see other stories that he's done. Of course, Warlord is a Vietnam vet um, who was actually serving in Vietnam when his plane crashed into Scartaris. Uh, so it's a thing that comes up a lot. There's stories in the Green Arrow that are about Vietnam as well. Um, and I think that was, I think it's really some personal baggage of Grell's that, he, that he is reflected in his writing here, um, uh, and maybe maybe some level of of guilt on the part of the you know of the writer of the author, uh, because I mean who's to say I have you know I've never uh, and a lot of people I have known people that served in Nam. And just like a lot of people that I knew younger that served in World War II, they really didn't want to talk about it. Uh, they really did not want to talk about it. And, and you know, in most cases, they, they did what they, uh, what they had to do. And, 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 of course, you know, Vietnam, I mean, this right here predates Punisher War Journal, predates the NAM, you know, in terms of comics. Okay. It also predates, uh, uh, you know, when uh, a Full Metal Jacket and, you know, and, and, and those movies that came out afterwards, you know, in the mid 80s, when America was just starting to come to terms and be able to talk about the Vietnam conflict, you know, right, which was very uncomfortable for a lot of people in this country it still is today. Yeah. So, I mean, my father served two terms in Vietnam. So when I was a kid at this time, um, uh, when I was a little, little kid, we would ask him questions about what he did in Vietnam and he'd talk about it. I don't know how much he was telling us was actually, yeah. uh, I know there's stuff he didn't tell us. Let's put it that way. Um, at some point as a kid, I realized uh, I should not be asking these questions. Yeah. But we used to, you know, whenever there would be these movies and TV shows, my dad was was always interested in watching them. Platoon, Full Metal Jacket. He would watch all the stuff with the Vietnam. Didn't really talk about any of it. But this sort of stuff, like I have a, quite a few Vietnam comics. It's something that's a point of interest for me, like Vietnam Journal. I haven't put no, them all together Journal. from Don Lomax. Um, Which is actually, I think it's a rather underrated series. I've heard oh, the best thing that Apple Comics ever put out. I uh, haven't read them because I wanted to get the whole run because that's uh, just the way I read these days. I want to get the whole run. I've been told by multiple people that it's the best war book about Vietnam, but um, it, it is. It's a. Uh, it's an interesting story. Um, for me, it's like I didn't love it, but that's just because. Uh, maybe it's just a personal thing i've just seen yeah. so many versions of this story um but it, it's an important story for john sable um we do see some of the other characters in this come back with the guy that he goes to vietnam with his old army buddy shows up again in a later arc we also uh, it's an important one for sunny um although interestingly sunny's kind of sidelined after this um we see him show up in very small parts we do have that one arc later that sort of revolves around his hollywood contacts mm -hmm. um but uh we don't get a whole lot more with sonny and his family after the end of this storyline um 
let's get to the next arc because a okay. couple a couple of things interesting here happen. Uh, Fourteen. Um, Another topical storyline. Yeah, so it's about uh, it's a really kind yeah. of goofy <laughs> um, in some ways. Basically, there's this uh, dancer um, who is defected from the Soviet Union, this ballet dancer who's defected from the Soviet Union, but his wife is still over there. And so Sable goes to Berlin because she happens to be performing uh, in East Berlin. And so they, it's a chance of a lifetime. And so there's this convoluted thing that happens, but eventually they get over the Berlin wall by like parachuting across. And it's, um, it's pretty silly, but, but again, like, uh, when I was a kid, there was, um, going to a religious school, there was a surprising amount of anti-communist propaganda that we were given as part of our curriculum. And, um, so we would watch these like movies. There's one about this people that, that built a, a, uh, hot air balloon is secretly in their backyard and hot air ballooned over the wall that we watched like twice when I was in school. So this was very much a thing at the time is people trying to escape from Berlin to get over the wall. And the, this, this was, again, I think this is still 84. So, uh, summer, yeah, this is summer of 84. So the wall, um, is still, it's going to be another five years before the wall comes down. Um, I thought this story was goofy. And then at the end, the most important thing, because it sets up one of my favorite scenes in all of comics and the next issue is uh, the guy gives him, gives John tickets to see him perform. And, and he's like this most famous ballet performer in the world. And so he brings Gray with him to go see their performance. Uh, I thought this was, again, it's timely. I thought it was a pretty silly, but this is surprisingly going to have a follow-up story, which yeah. was just kind of like mind-blowing in a few issues that uh, talk about Twisty. Um, but any any other thoughts on this one? Uh, no, I thought this was, uh, you know, pretty much, this is where Grail did a, a, you know, kind of a series of, of, of short, you know, self-contained stories for the most part that yeah. could be just red standalone. This is one of them. Actually the next, uh, next issue or two, you know, are, are the same way. And I don't view those so much as filler as just, um, uh, downtime from the major overarching, you know, content, uh, throughout the series. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's several issues here. Again, I love girls pacing. I like mixing up this, the, in, one of the dons, then we have the character studies, we have the longer arcs. I love the mix. You gotta yeah. have the mix. Next issue is a really silly story where um, this woman is convinced that um, that she has she can find proof that Jesus visited Central America. And when the, what ends up happening is they find get to the proof, and it turns out it's actually proof that Vikings visited Central America. Right. Um, so that's all goofy, but the important part of issue 15 is one of my favorite scenes in all of comics, and this is so stereotypically 1980s, it cracks me up so hard every time I think about it, is the dance-off. So John Sable and Gray Adler are leaving the uh, performance on right. Broadway and they come across this ridiculous New York City street gang. I've seen some people actually break down the sequence because 
the street gang here, people are like, there's no way this would be an actual street gang because they're all different ethnicities. It's a, it's like a multi, like an ethnically diverse gang of violent 1980s and they've got the boom box and like, and Sable's like, uh oh, I'm going to have to kick their butts because they're about to kill us. And uh, Gray Adler's like, let me handle this. And he steps <laughs> up and he points at the boom box and he's like, you know, let's see how you can handle this and then he has a dance off with with and they're break dancing and they're yeah. doing all these dance moves and at the end they all high five because <laughs> they're all part of the brotherhood of dance and it's just absolutely exactly as bad as you think it is because it's it's not done ironically yeah it's done like it's the most of all the 80s references, and we've got a couple coming up right in the next couple issues that are ridiculous. This is the most 1980s thing, maybe in all of comics. Yeah, I, I would agree. It, it, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, the 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 use of that. I mean, I'm not sure when Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo came out, but. <laughs> But this is a uh, right up. It, it, it's 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 to that level. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. Uh, the, it, and it's one of the few instances where I think Grill, again, he forces the insertion of it. But but it's used as a point to where Grable, uh, not Grable Sable. <laughs> we're not talking about Betty Grable. John Sable thinks and just automatically as a def, as a defense mechanism. Okay, I'm I'm about to have to take care of business. And, and, and it's totally disarmed by the break dance off, you know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Like his, he's in this default mode of violence. And uh, there's a couple instances in the series where people are like, actually, there's other ways to do this. We don't yeah. have to get violent. Um, issue 16, I won't talk about too much. It's the return of Maggie the cat. Uh, yeah. Not my favorite cover. This is this feels kind of like growls like I don't have time to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, basically, she gets Sable's help because there's this secret formula that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and you assume that it's like for some sort of chemical that's gonna like yeah. cause like a like a killer gas that's going to destroy Europe or something. And then it turns out at the end that it's actually someone stole the formula for, for Coca-Cola. And actually, oh. I, 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 they, he drops hints early on. And when he first mentioned Atlanta at first, I'm like, don't tell me this is going to be about Coke. And sure enough, it was about Coke. I, this is one actually guessed long range on the front end when reading it. This time. might be the dumbest plot. <laughs> But uh, but I don't mind that because uh, it's when girl, you know when the writers have fun it's fun and the the thing is there's this criminology professor who has posed a, a challenge to his students to come up with a perfect crime and his students come up with this plot to steal the the formula for coke and they manage to do it and then it's so over the top where the the criminology professor basically like kills them all with an uzi yeah. and it's just it's just like so ridiculous um uh and but then we get the next arc which is like um not ridiculous uh one other thing i want to point out about this just real quickly before moving on yeah this is the first issue really where grell's 
uh, and I'm speaking as a firearms enthusiast myself. Uh, uh, my wife works or has worked in the industry. Uh, and, and I'll say this, I will not compete with my wife in a pistol match because she can outshoot me with a pistol any day of the week. <laughs> but that being said, Grell's, this is the first where we really see Grell's um, uh, writing uh, uh, in terms of a, a firearms enthusiast because he goes into rather great detail about the, the Mauser pistol that, that, that uh, Sable uses so frequently. And I thought it was really interesting. It, it is kind of forced, and he does force it throughout the series when he brings up details about firearms and everything. But I can see that from a standpoint of, of, of being, a, you know, a firearms enthusiast. I don't talk about guns to other people unless they want to talk about them. Here he had his own soapbox, and he could put in what he wanted. And it's very obvious that that's what he did here because the, the way he renders firearms in his drawings, very accurate. Very, very, I mean, he... He knows exactly what he's doing, just like Russ Heath was very accurate when he was drawing tanks and planes. Um, he, he knew what he knew his subject matter. Uh, and, and so, you know, you see this. This is not the first time you see it. I mean, not, not the last time you see it, but it is the first time you see something like that by Grell. And this is inserting one of his personal passions into the book itself. Yeah, and I don't mind that, but it is also a little bit funny because there are definitely parts here where where sable over the course of the series where he'll where he'll be like well for this mission i'm not sure my regular mauser will work so what i think i need to do is i need to take the replace the barrel with this modified barrel yeah, and then yeah. i'll put in this different flange and then i'll adjust the framostat and i i have no i don't know anything about this stuff but it's just yeah. like what it reminds me of is when you read like a hard science fiction novel and there will suddenly be like a three-page explanation of the science behind why this right. ship works. Yeah. And it's like, who cares? All we need to know is that the spaceship goes there. I don't right. need to right. know, understand the physics of how the, the engine is supposed to function. Well, and like I said, I don't, I don't know if he used this filler material or if it was just a self-indulgence. And I really think that's probably what it was. It was just a self-indulgence on his part. So, uh, I, I, again, I don't mind it. But it, you have to take it really for what it is, because people that that do not know, you know, are, are not interested in firearms at all. And, and there's lots of people like that, and that's perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. Uh, and that, but yeah, just like you said, it's kind of it, it gets kind of they get kind of lost. It's, it, it goes right over the head. Yeah, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. Tell me what's going on in the story. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. According. Okay, so we're about to launch into issues 17 and 18 with the Olympic tie-in Deadly Games. Um, yeah, so uh, basically what happens here is we get the characters from issue 14, the dancer, um, is murdered. And... Uh, we discover, according to the government, that the Russian uh, character, not 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 gray, not gray, not gray. No, no, no. The 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 guy who they went Sable went with the guy to Berlin to rescue right. his wife, and that was successful. But now that guy's been murdered. We discover that there's this Soviet agent called Sparrow, and the Sparrow is going around killing defectors. And so there's this thing where the wife is now in danger, and so she insists that Sable be her bodyguard she refuses the, the the u.s government's age she insists that sable is the bodyguard and 
they, they travel to Los Angeles and they get attacked by the sparrow on the way there and Sable gets his butt kicked and he ends up getting thrown off the train and rescued by a mountain woman. And he ends up uh, finding this pilot who like flies him in a biplane is something like right out of like, uh, it's a mad, 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 yeah. mad world to like get to the finish line. Uh, I've got a note. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And they get there. And basically the big twist is it turns out that the wife is actually the Soviet agent. And uh, when her husband discovered that she was secretly a Soviet agent, she had him murdered, silence him. And then she called in the Sparrow as backup because the real plan is they needed to get to Los Angeles so she could blow up the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Summer Olympic Games and with a big missile in retribution for the U S boycotting the 1980 Olympics. Right. And uh, this twist was, was out of nowhere for me, um, uh, which I appreciated There's some good misdirection. Um, I got a little bit confused, unusual because Grell's artwork is usually pretty clear about storytelling wise. There was some confusion for me at the end where the missile gets fired and it, instead of going into the stadium, it like hits her car. There must have been some sort of tracker or something in her car that caused it to target her instead. But I, I couldn't follow it. But um, I thought this was a, this was a cool storyline. Again, we're getting this series of stories where Grell is tying things specifically to what's exactly happening right now with the Coke formula and the Olympic games and the dance off. And it's just so the Berlin wall. It's so like of this specific moment, this cold war stuff with the Soviets agents acting. Um, it's, you know, it's, as a kid, we were so afraid of everything happening with the cold war that the Russians were going to come in like red dawn came out, I think mm -hmm. the same year in 84. And uh, so it's just feel this feels it's almost like a comfort food for me. It feels okay. like my childhood. Well, I'll tell you what it reminded me of the, 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 the pacing and the plot twist uh, really uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, those uh, of a Batman detective story style uh, from the, from the earlier mid seventies, maybe something that Mike Barr wrote or something like that. Uh, it was uh uh, that's just kind of the feel I got because, you know, in a lot of those books, there would be clues left throughout the book and only till you get to the end. And if you hadn't figured it out by then, then you can go back and pick up all the clues in the book, you know? Uh, and that's kind of what it felt like uh, the way that Sable arrived at determining who, uh, you know, who, who the, the person was, you know? Yeah. Um, so I like this story quite a bit. Yeah, pretty um, good. Issue 19 was a weird one for me. It has some important stuff in it. Um, all of a sudden, Sable ends up back in Africa. Yeah. Uh, there were long sections of this. Like, It's basically a one-off story where he's being sort of like hunted by uh, the poacher people. And he shows up at the house of his in-laws, the, the parents of his murdered wife. And um, they're kind of like the the mother's the kind of like time to move on, let it go. And he's like, mm -hmm. I can't. And they're like, you're you're gonna get yourself killed. You got a death wish. And he's like, whatever. And then at the end, we have this thing where the dad eventually decides to 
to go help him, picks up his gun and goes out. And then the story just ends. Uh, and there's no follow-up. There's no follow-up at all uh, in the next issue. We have no idea how he ended up in Africa, why he went to Africa, really even when this story takes place. Because last time we saw him, he's in the Olympics. As we'll see next issue, he's back home in the city. And and there's no connective tissue between any of these stories. He just sort of shows up in Africa. This is weird because it almost felt like a fill-in issue, but it's by Growl. And so everything's been so tightly uh, planned out that this sort of stood out to me. It's not that the story was bad and it's actually a very important, which I'll get to in a second on the character level, but it didn't quite fit together. And I, I was really puzzled. I, I, I think, I think it, it was meant to be a standalone story, but not, not just a, not exclusive of the overall plot, because I think it, re it requires it, it. I put down here, uh, you know, Sable basically it's another reflection issue it's, a, it's another look back issue and one of the things about this you know I talked about talking heads earlier on how sometimes that appeals sometimes it really depends on the writer uh, and but the fact that Grell is also doing the illustration work and I'm just going to show this because Grell does in this all throughout this book when he's doing the art he's very I mean I don't know if you if I can the the emotions and the way that he draws these characters that are non non action sequences you know but he does just it, it's this great rendering of emotions you know in his characters throughout and and you know just picking this issue up as a as a as a, an example of that because it is largely him coming again coming to terms with the death of his wife, but coming to terms that he hasn't visited yet, because you know, obviously, he's uh, not only, you know, is he uh, persona non grata, you know, in 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 <laughs> in Rhodesia or Zimbabwe, but uh, he's also persona non grata with his in-laws, very obviously. Yeah. Um, on a character level, there's some hints here that this is the first time we see him sort of acknowledge that he actually enjoys writing these children's books. Mm -hmm. um, at some point here, I think in the first arc, we learned that the stories that his children, his, his children's books, by the way, are about leprechauns living in Central Park. Yeah. And we discover that the, the, he originally came up with those stories as bedtime stories for his children. And so here, when he's, when he's talking to the mothers, it's the first time we, he admits that he actually kind of likes writing those books. Um, I thought this issue was important on a character level because it's the first time that we see that he has changed as a character from the beginning of the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, we see him change a little bit in terms of his relationship with Gray, but that's not given a lot of space and it's not really central to the character, but this is the first time we see that he is starting to change. Time's passing and he is starting to to move on as he's very slowly developing this relationship with Mike. They haven't even been on a date yet. That's coming up. Right. Um, but he's starting to entertain the idea that he, there could be someone else. And, and he's having a lot of trouble. I think it's implied, or maybe I'm inferring it, having read the whole series, that he goes back to Africa 
and he sort of invites this death wish upon himself almost because he's he's feeling so guilty about the idea that he could move on that he yes. doesn't want to allow himself to move on absolutely absolutely it, it, that's uh you know the thing is is with this character uh you know when it comes he, he, he definitely has his weaknesses but they're not revealed very often and when they do it's it's still it's uncomfortable to the character when they are revealed and you can tell that with respect to his fan his wife and his family he's got a very soft underbelly it just does not like for it to show yeah so i mean i thought this was a good issue it's just it needed a little work to tie it into everything else that was happening i also wanted to mention this cover yeah um is a classic of a certain type of grell cover where uh, we're going to see a lot more of this later, and we're going to see a lot of it in Green Arrow, where Mike Grell is a hunter himself. He's a big game hunter. He goes on safari. There's actually sketchbooks that he has in later issues that he, of where he, he's gone on safari and sketched the animals and stuff. And we he starts to seep into that's that's sort of the genesis I think of the character being based in Africa. Right. Um, but it starts to seep more into the stories and the artwork. And uh, we also start to see people really bitching in the letter column <laughs> about it. Uh, there's an arc later on we'll talk about when we get there, which is basically just an excuse to do a whole bunch of these things. He did the same thing in Green Arrow. There's a whole storyline in Green Arrow about poachers in Africa where there's like several issues in a row where it's covers, the cover is like an elephant or, or whatever, or a lion's head. And, uh, totally anecdotal but when i go to comic books shows and stuff and i'm going through like 25 cent bins there's more copies of those africa safari covers the green arrow than any other issues of green arrow i have the distinct impression that like half the people reading green arrow quit during that storyline and dumped everything from that point on and so like I could have, I could wallpaper my house with pictures of that elephant from like Green Arrow 43 or whatever it is. Um, so it's just one of his quirks, I guess. Yeah. Um, let's jump to, I actually forgot to mention something about issue 18. I meant, meant to mention when I talked about the, the, the pilot, um, that was another veiled reference to a real person. It was to a guy named Pappy Boyington, who yeah. was a World War II like squadron leader uh, i just want to mention that because i left that dangling right no it's yeah it's 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 in there and uh pappy boyington who some people would rather or would uh know from the tv series bye bye black sheep which was very loosely based on pappy boyington i might say might add uh so issue 20 we got a one-off it's the rookie i when i was going to read this i was so confused just seeing the cover because i had just read issue 19 yeah which ended on a cliffhanger which is never mentioned again <laughs> and so i was like what the hell does this have to do with that the answer is nothing it's fine right. for what it is um which is uh sable tries to break up uh, a robbery at like a store and he gets shot by a cop and he's sort of like in and out of surgery they don't know if he's going to make it in the cop and there's a thing where the cop didn't identify himself as a police officer but sable sort of covers for him because he's like hey i pulled the gun on a cop yeah 
Um, what we really see here, though, is the reaction of everyone in the supporting cast to the idea that Sable might die. And so it's really a character driven issue. There's a lot of stuff with with all of them, including, you know, uh, Lieutenant Josh Charles. We see everybody's reaction. So it's really a character piece. Um, I like this issue. Uh, again, it just the issue 19 just stuck out so weirdly um, that it kind of threw me off just reading this because of where it was placed. Isn't this also the issue where uh, Charles begins to put two and two together about Flem and Sable? I think it might be. I, I forget. There's a thing where where uh, I where, think hints are starting to be dropped here, and he's yeah. starting to pick up pieces. There's a story in here somewhere. I didn't make a note of it. Where Flem, he Sable as Flem goes to Josh Charles's house right. and reads like. Uh, like a story to him, and we and we see he's sort of piecing it together. He does eventually figure it out, yeah. although it's not really made a big deal. Twenty one, another one and done. Um, whoops, uh, where is it here? Twenty one. Yeah, another classic Grell style cover. One of a number of covers that has the uh, twin towers on it, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, Another rip from the 1980s headlines. I'm just old enough to remember the the um, big media furor around Klaus von Bülow, um, who that's what this story is is very obviously right. based on. Yeah. Um, everyone can just Google that. I don't want to get too much into Klaus von Bülow. The important thing here in the story is Sable finally gets a date with Mike. Um, so we're on issue 21 the the they got they met in issue two and it's been slowly moving towards this date for 20 yeah. yeah so i i it's great it's a great slow burn and we're basically and just as a writer i'm, I'm happy looking at this because i realized that we're going to get sort of the the conclusion in my opinion of the that arc with Mike around issue 40. So we're right at the midpoint of the arc and we're right where it should be plot wise in terms of them getting the date. It's sort of like a key sort of turning point moment. Um, I don't really have anything else on this issue. Well, one, one, the one thing I had to, I wanted to add on this was the, the, the storyline, the main storyline definitely has, he taps into O. Henry and Sake in terms of a twist ending at the very end of this issue. And it, which is which is rather effective, I, I think. Matter of fact, I think the I think the twist ending is probably uh, in the main storyline is probably the most uh, the most uh, interesting part of the entire story. Uh, I don't even remember what it is to be honest. Uh, where where uh, uh, where the, she is uh, obviously she knows she's going to get off on the charges. Oh yes, I do remember now. Okay. Yeah, okay. and and then in a complete freak accident. It, it really does her no good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't love this story. I was no, it was okay in yeah. the subplots. Um, so, but then we have a, a three-parter. So now he's he's moving back to the longer storylines. We get several three-parters in a row here. And I, I, I have to say, I, I really like this cover. Yeah, it's a cool cover. Um. And then we've got the second issue here, and uh, you know everybody loves the um, the Cross target. 
Yeah, crosshairs, and then um, the third one we get. Yeah. Uh, I really like this cover a lot. I do too. I do too. Yeah. I think it's very effective. Yeah. And so um, basically, what happens is uh, we get the return of Sparrow, the uh, the Russian assassin, and there's this convoluted, um, very James Bond plot line that involves the Middle East, where they they go to Israel, and then there's like this there's a couple mysterious women there's a woman who's like working for the israelis and then there's another woman who is working with sparrow sort of and but she's sort of middle eastern and there's like a thing where she's like riding i forget if it's on a horse or a camel but she's got like you know the robes uh and um he ends up sleeping with the the israeli woman and she seems to get killed um as in this attack and so at the end sable's got his sniper rifle out and he can shoot either sparrow or this other woman who he thinks betrayed him and uh the story ends and actually it doesn't doesn't actually tell you who he shot but we find out later that he let sparrow live and he shot the woman i was a little frustrated by the ending because I was like, was I supposed to guess who he shot? Because I kind of guessed that he shot the woman. But... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I think the last sequence shows the the crosshairs on her last. Before, yeah. yeah. And, and and to me, I mean, it was it was one of those where there. I mean, there are times people have to understand this series. The violence in it is is oftentimes graphic and oftentimes very brutal. Um. Uh, not not from a sadistic point of view but from a very cold calculated point of view a lot of times and and i think it was i don't know if it was a any mini mighty mo in his head you know in the storyline but uh it, yeah it, it was um i wasn't really happy with the way it ended but then you realize that uh, you know a lot of times the the, the you know Bad stuff happens and, and people get killed to, to oversimplify things. Yeah, uh, what's, you know, it became more of a more of a uh, uh, um, really for him it was more of a revenge factor because he b- believes uh, Rachel Elazar, the the IDF agent, you know, the Israeli agent, he believes her to be dead. You know? Yeah, well, that's one thing that's interesting to me about the character is that um, this is nominally about him trying to be involved in tracking down Sparrow but of course it's really about his involvement with these two different women on different sides of this cultural divide and he ends up sort of he sleeps with with um uh Rachel and he sort of falls for her and um uh again it's sort of a recurring thing with the character that one thing that makes him very different from James Bond is he he seems to have a weakness for women, but it's an emotional weakness that James Bond, of course, does not have. Yeah. Um, where and uh, it's also interesting that it comes right on the heels of him finally getting his first date with Mike in the previous issue. Um, you know, they're not exclusive. It's fine. But it's also sort of like we've been building for 20 issues towards this and then he's sort of like, well, now I'm going to go to Israel and just sleep with this woman here. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the only other thing I have to point out on this is, is I believe 22, issue 22, the middle of the storyline, 
is where he actually has begins the uh, safari sketchbook okay uh, yeah you know uh, which which you know later uh and i don't know it wasn't so much the sketches or, or the drawings the artwork as it was the uh, accompanying text you know and, and a lot of people have feelings regarding you know hunting in general you know and, and yeah i can respect that but uh he did catch a lot of flack and this is the beginning of that yeah uh, so then we get another three-parter and, uh, this is interesting to me because, um, it's, here's a, here's a first part. It's kind of yeah. cool. I'm just going to show these here. Second part, because as we see here on the cover here, it's not actually about Sable himself so much as we get the story of his parents, how his parents met and, um, how they came and then how he came to America as a young child. There's a couple things in here that there's just sort of a, basically his parents are both um, allied agents during the war. They had a fling and then it seemed like uh, she disappeared somewhere behind the iron curtain, not too long after the war ended and after Sable was born. And so, Sable was then sent to America uh, to live with his father, who was sort of a distant a-hole figure, and Sable sort of grew up on his own. And so we get a lot more, but there's like a couple whole issues here where Sable is not really even in it. It's all the stuff of what happened to his parents during World War II. It's all backstory. The, 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 these issues, all three of 25 through 27, are really backstories, you know, to, to the... Uh, um, I like them on some levels. I think they're fine as story. It, it's interesting be, that it, I don't want to read too much into this, um, but it's not too long after this where I start to feel like Grell is losing his interest a little bit in the series. And, and I don't necessarily see that yet, but it is interesting that we get this three-part story, which is you could have the exact same story with absolutely no connection to John Sable at all, yeah. if you wanted to, because it's really this World War II story. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting that he's able to tell that within the framework of John Sable, and it does it works fine. Um, but it's an interesting choice uh, as opposed to say the original origin story where it's set in the framework of his relationship with Mike. We do get a little bit of that here. Um, he like he and Mike actually begin a relationship at the end of the storyline. Right. Um, the other thing that happens well, definitely here, advances there at the end of 27. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing, the other thing that happens here that is hinting to me that the things are changing in terms of Grell's commitment to the book is it's no longer 28 pages of Grell stuff because we start getting a backup story right. and uh, let's see if I can find it. I think it's on the yeah. cover. Is oh, it's it, horrible. Here is Shatter. It's the first uh, comic book done on a computer. And for that reason, it's interesting. Buddy, it looks like it too. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it's uh, really bad art. And it's the best art they could do at the time. But even at the time when this is coming out, this is right around the time I started collecting comics. So I was seeing some of the stuff on the stands. It still looked like crap because yeah. the technology was not there yet to yeah. draw on a computer. So I appreciate it from a historical level and they eventually had a shatter series. This was yeah. like a, a setting up the miniseries, right? 
I would have been much happier if they just did the miniseries over there. And then I could be like, hey, there's an interesting cultural artifact that I don't have to have stinking up my comic collection <laughs> with this horrible art. And it's bad. <laughs> I can only imagine how disappointed the long-term readers of Sable that were buying it at the time must have been to get the next issue. And all of a sudden, instead of 28 pages of Growl, there's like 21 pages of Growl and then like six or seven pages of this nonsense in the back. I mean talk about a kick in the teeth like that i i didn't didn't enjoy that yeah and from a technical from a technical standpoint uh the 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 artwork in in in, in shatter um is it's it's done uh, if you can imagine if you i mean if you didn't live during that time you don't really don't wouldn't really, wouldn't really get it but uh, creating graphic images strictly by xy plot points <laughs> it's really what they did you know uh uh and so it was uh, it it was basically one step above dot matrix but not too much yeah it's it's really rough That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, Tartan Phantom, and I hope you enjoyed the second part of our three-part discussion of John Sable Freelance. Next time, in part three, we'll be wrapping up the series, bringing you up through issue 56 and discussing the series' legacy and uh, impact on the other works that Mike Grell has done since then. So hopefully you'll join us for that. And of course you can always visit us online at classiccomics.org to join the conversation. See you there.